Ephesians chapter 5. You know, Paul is continuing to talk about this in this metaphor, this analogy, if you will, of walking in Christ. Um, this is a big deal, right? We're, we're new creations. We're learning to walk. Parents, you know, you can think back. Probably as an individual, you, you probably don't remember your experience of learning to walk. But as parents, if, you're, if you have the privilege of being a parent, you remember those first steps that your, your child took. I, I laugh today when I see new parents and how excited they are to... And, and when a child gets to be six, seven, eight months old, they start working on getting them to walk. And I'm just laughing, thinking, yeah, you're not going to want to do that. <laughs> Trust me. And they're so excited. And finally, you know, they, they get those first couple steps. They let go. And it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. And then you're like, what did I do? <laughs> so much easier when they were sitting in that chair. You know... My, my wife was born, Kristen was born very premature. She was an RH factor baby back when all those things weren't, weren't understood real well and um, miraculously survived really a very early birth. Uh, today wouldn't be such a big deal, but when she was born, it was a big deal. One of the, one of the ramifications or the consequences was the development of her, her legs and, and skeletal and muscles and all that, and walking was a real challenge. And um, her dad told me stories that in order to correct that back, they couldn't afford the prostheses and things that were available. The doctor took her dad aside and said, listen, here's what I would do. Get a board. Get these two corrective shoes. Here's the angle on the board. Here's the distance. Just screw them down on the board. And she's going to have to wear those when she sleeps. Can you imagine that, the torture of a little kid having to do that? And then when she started to walk... um, the doctor said, listen, you need to get her in dance. You know, get her in ballet, get her in dance. The discipline of it, the training of it is the, you know, back before physical therapy and all that was really well understood. That was the best physical therapy, and it, and it paid off. It, it, you know, she was able to learn to walk, and, and all that's behind her. Paul here uses a series of contrasts comparing how we walked when we were dead in our sin. Remember, we looked at Lazarus last week and Christ calling him out of the tomb And he was a dead man resurrected, but he was still bound in those grave clothes. And Jesus said, unloose him and set him free. And Paul is using this metaphor of learning to walk um, to set us free from the sin that we were in and walk in these new creations. It is as if Paul is giving us leg braces and dance lessons in order to teach us how to walk. So here in Ephesians chapter 5, what you're going to see, put this list up on the screen for you note takers, um, he's going to teach us to walk in love, he's going to teach us to walk in light, he's going to teach us to walk in wisdom, and he's going to teach us to walk in submission. And these are all in contrast. Paul exhorts us to imitate, literally mimic Christ in the way that he walks, And they're in contrast, a stark contrast to the way we walked before we were Christians. He says to walk in love, not in fornication or sexual immorality. To walk in light, but not in darkness. To walk in wisdom, not foolishness. Walk in submission, not selfishness. And really, submission and selfishness, Pastor Bob, as we get to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and on, going to talk about the marriage relationship beginning next week. 
So let, let me read this passage. I'll read it down through, and then we'll come back and we'll look at these, um, these four areas. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimic him, literally. As dear children, that's how we learn to walk, by watching our parents. You know, we would sit in that bouncy chair and look up at them and go, you know, if I could get up on two feet, I could get into a lot of trouble. And that's what we did. We, we I mean, but Paul's saying, mimic the Lord. Walks and, and, and walk how he walked. And then we're going to look at those four aspects of his walk. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says... Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul, paraphrasing a passage from Isaiah there, church, extra-biblical references to the first century church indicate that this was actually verses from a hymn, an Easter type of hymn that the early church would sing. Uh, Beautiful in in its poetry. Verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to the God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mimic Jesus Christ. I want you to make a note. If you're a note taker, I hope you are. Make a note in your Bible, on your notebook, on your smart device. Some homework for this week. You have to do this. It's easy. Be a blessing to you. But go into 1 John and read chapters 3 and 4 this week. It'll take you five minutes to do that reading, but I want you to do it meditatively. I want you to do it prayerfully. Maybe do it once a day. 
all week long. Take 30 minutes a day and, and, and meditate on John, 1 John, the epistle 1 John, chapters 3 and 4. John's insight into what is love, this idea of walking in love, verse 1 here, verse 2, is paramount in that letter to the church. In addition, let me read for you from Romans, same author, different church that he wrote to, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up by this, namely saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love does no harm to a neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul obviously echoing the words of Christ very clearly when they said, Jesus, what is the greatest of all? If you could sum them up, what's the one we need to follow? Jesus made it clear to love our neighbor. Now, this is a problem for us because we don't understand this love. This love has been corrupted. This word has even been corrupted. See, this type of love is not natural. It requires a new nature in us. That's why we need to be born again. A supernatural working of the Holy Spirit is required, flowing through us, and that happens upon anyone's faith in Christ. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when I couple that understanding, the helper, the teacher, the one who would bring to remembrance and explanation, as, as, as John promised, Jesus promised to us, rather, in the Gospel of John, and then when I pick up his word and his Holy Spirit brings his word to life in me and the obedience of the word starts to take place in me, now I start to be able to love the way the Bible intended. The greatest evidence of this type of love is undeserved forgiveness, which comes from a heartfelt response of the supreme act of God's love toward us. And you understand that love, I would think, right? You know, John told us in John 3.16, how, how, what does that love look like? Well, that he, God would give his only begotten son that whomever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Now, look back at your text. Remember, there's no in Paul's writing, there's no chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's one continuous thought. Look how the end of chapter, what we call chapter 4, look how it dovetails so perfectly with chapter 5 in this context of love and forgiveness, right? The end of chapter 4 says this, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How is that possible? Even as God in Christ forgave you, and then it dovetails right in, therefore be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ. Look at how this falls together, right? This is beautiful. See, we need to understand. Here's a couple. I gave you homework. Now we'll go into math class. Here's two equations for you. All right? Two equations, two equalities. Unforgiveness equals self-righteousness. Write that equation down. Unforgiveness equals self-righteousness. And then above it, because it's superior, write this equation down. Forgiveness equals love. 
Unforgiveness equals self-righteousness. Forgiveness equals love. See, if I'm unforgiving towards somebody, if I hold resentment, a grudge, seeking revenge, it's because I put myself above them. I'm self-righteous. I think I'm more important. My pride, my ego, whatever's been offended, my rights, I am more righteous than them. That's why it's hard for me to forgive them. And this is, this is common if we don't understand the fact that Christ loved us. Because if I don't accept his forgiveness, I'm putting myself above his righteousness. It's not good enough. His work wasn't good enough. And many of you struggle with that. But when I understand what Christ did for me, when I understand his unconditional love for me, The fact that when I was still a sinner, he loved me. And I start to welcome that forgiveness into my heart. Now from it flows love. How is this love defined? Paul says, mimic Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. One of the verses that you'll read in your homework is 1 John 3.16. Great parallel verse, a great great partner verse for John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. So you want to know what love is? Lay your life down for someone else. That's love. This is agape love. This is what the Greek would call, this is a word that they would use, agape. We have one word, love. Everything from my wife to ice cream to my dog to the eagles. It's all one word, love. The Greeks had this word agape. Agape love is unconditional love. It's self-denying love. It's self-sacrificing love. Agape love is the love of giving and not getting. Even when it ceases to get anything in return, it continues to love. This is the basis, the hope, the only hope we have for Christian marriage. Without this, you're hopeless. With this act, this verb, this understanding, this decision, this supernatural gift through the Holy Spirit, any marriage is an eternal marriage. Till death do you part. For sicker, for in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse. Why? Because it doesn't expect anything in return. And listen, I guarantee you, If you can agape somebody through sickness, through poverty, through difficult times, the response to that will become other types of love. Eros love, that erotic love, the phileo love, the brotherly love. It will happen if two people are willing to not expect anything in return and in submission based on the love that Christ gave them, surrender to each other. Then there is hope. Once we understand love, it's easy to see how stark the contrast is to what Paul calls in your face. This is very stark. He contrasts this type of love to fornication in the New King James or the King James, the Old English translation. Any type of immorality, you could call it fornication here in the Old English or in the more modern translations, it may be called sexual immorality. The word in the Greek is pornea. It's the word that we render from, in the English, we would render pornography, pornographic. 
It's derived from the Greek word perneo, which means literally to sell off or to surrender. It's the idea that we would take a sacred gift that God has given human beings and that they would just surrender it, sell it off. To walk outside of Christ is to sell off, to surrender purity and holiness that was given as one of the great gifts this side of eternity. Paul exhorts the Christian to have, verse 4, look, absolutely no part of it. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now stay with me on this. It's very important. Look at verse 6 that follows that. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, we live in a culture that considers the biblical view of marriage, of sex, of sexuality, of sexual purity. We live in a culture that says that that's puritanical and Victorian. I've been told, people that are very close to me look at me and say, Steve, you have an outdated, old-fashioned view, and it's not relevant to today's society. And we put words all around it to soften it, to take away the pornography of it, the pornea of it, the fornication of it. Isaiah said that this would happen. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, we're going to turn everything around, everything that was once sanctified and holy and special and set apart And from the very beginning of his creation, the enemy, Satan, the fallen one, has been seeking to deceive and rob you and me of the great gifts that God intended for holiness, for mystical relation with him and another human being. And Satan has taken it and tarnished it and sold it off and made it common. It's one of the great robberies of all human kind we've replaced words of truth with words of convenience the bible calls sex outside of marriage pornea the old english fornication modern translations it's a sexual immorality but the god of this world would much rather call it when i was growing up you know when i was younger he would use a really soft word making love Today, that's even diminished. Now it's hooking up, casual sex, sex without, you know, restrictions, sex with relationships with benefits, whatever you want to call it. Please understand something. There's only two, there's only, there's only one place that two human beings can truly make love, make agape. And that's within the beautiful freeing bonds of the marriage relationship. And and I probably need to go a bit further this morning and just make it clear so that there's no doubt where we stand as a congregation in holding up God's word to be true 
that that marriage relationship is defined as a man and a woman. Now, young people, please don't tune me out yet. If you're in a relationship with a partner this morning, and again, I'm going I'm to bias this towards girls. Um, it goes both ways. But I'm, I was a guy. <laughs> I think like a guy. I'm going to talk from that perspective. If you're in a relationship and your partner, young ladies, is pressuring you or coercing you towards sexual relations of any type, all right, we know what they are. We don't have to play games on what they are, what the, what the act was. I didn't really do have sex. We know what it is. Please understand that that's not love. He doesn't love you as the Bible would ask him to love you. He's self-centered. He wants to satisfy himself. He doesn't care about the guilt that he leaves you with. Certainly doesn't care about disease that he may transfer to you. He doesn't care about the possibility of you becoming pregnant. And the last thing he's concerned about is how he might drive a wedge between you and your God. The God that you're trying to understand, the God that you haven't quite figured out, or maybe within the church it's a God that you absolutely love, and this guy's trying to give you deceitful, idle words that are misleading you, and you're leaving a very sacred relationship on the table because he or she says they love you. That is not love. We just, took, we just talked about what love was. We just defined it. You're going to do it. You're going to read about it in your homework. If we love someone, then we will surrender our own selfish desires to help the other person live in obedience and purity and, uh, and, and honor of God to the fullness of what God would have for them. And again, don't play games with what it is. I had breakfast a couple months ago with a, with a young girl that I watched grow up in this church. And as a young woman, she sat across from me at a restaurant and just wept into her omelet because of somebody that said she, that loved her and now she bears a disease of herpes. And the humility, the, the, the pain, the discomfort, the humility and the impact that it has for the person that God would give her that she truly loves. Don't mess around. Don't play games. It's not judgment. God did not judge. You know, she wrestled with that whole thing. God judged me. God didn't judge her. It was a consequence of disobedience. One of the great privileges I have as a pastor, any pastor will tell you this, is to, is to marry a young person, officiate in a wedding. And last year I did more than I've ever done, and a lot of kids that I had had the privilege of pastoring in high school were getting married, and just things came together. I had a couple weddings I did last year where the couples had very short engagement periods. And I had people come up to me and, and they, they, were, they were concerned. Do you, don't, you think that, don't you think there's a risk in this, that they don't know each other that well? Well, is there a risk in it? Yeah. This is marriage. It's very risky. But am I concerned that they don't know each other? Well, let me think. The Bible says about knowing. I'm really glad they don't know each other. 
Some of the most beautiful weddings I've seen, some of the most beautiful marriages in this church come from Indian cultures where the husband and the wife have, they, they knew each other when their, their parents introduced them for an arranged marriage. And they're wonderful. Are they flawless? No. Was there no risk? Tremendous risk. But they agape one another and they've worked through sickness and health and richer and poorer and better and worse. And they glorify Christ. I commend those people that made those decisions, those short engagements, because they did it with the intent to honor God in purity. They made two important decisions that they would choose a person to love, to agape in marriage, and two, that they were committed to obedience and purity before the marriage. I think God will honor that. There's a lot of flip sides, though, to those stories. I get a lot of couples that I talk to, and they're in the midst of crisis, and then we start pushing in, and I start finding out where they've compromised on these things. And and I when I push back on that, I say, you understand what the Word of God says and why it's for blessing that He would want you to be pure. And they say, well, Pastor Steve, you don't understand. We believe that we're married in God's eyes. Yeah, it's, that's code. We all know what that's code for. But really what they're saying is, yeah, that God, that Scripture tells me knew me before the foundations of the earth, that Scripture tells me knit me together in my mother's womb, that scripture tells me knows my heart better than I know my own. Well, all those scriptures, you can just rip them out of the Bible and throw them away because we know what's better for us. Perhaps you're squirming this morning, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm not going to apologize for that. I hope that you are. I hope you're wrestling with this because dead men, as Spurgeon said, don't wrestle. So if you're wrestling, you're alive. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking as a married person, man, I am so glad he's picking on single people this morning. <laughs> well, buckle your seatbelt. Because <laughs> guess what? When we look at that word that Paul uses there to describe immorality, remember the word in the Greek is pornea. It's the word from which we get pornography. And yes, we are going to go there this morning. We need to go there. Because that's where the text has taken us. Again, verse 6 says that empty words deceive us. We, we, we have lost our moorings here. Pornography, there's, there's a spectrum from, of one, ex, one end to the other. I don't know where it begins and I don't know where it ends. I do know that as soon as I think I've understood where, the, where one end of it is, I, I hear of things and I realize, oh, it's even worse. It's even further out. On that end of the spectrum is heinous, despicable, unspeakable acts, of which Paul says don't, we don't even talk about them. Vict- acts that are victimizing human beings, sacred creations of God, mostly women, and unfortunately way too many children. Down the other end of the spectrum, though, and listen, that, that end, that heinous, despicable, unspeakable act, that, that wasn't something that is just what we deal with today. Now listen, we have more access to it today. Satan has come up with more and more ways to put it in our face. 
A guy right before church was sharing with me how he was, he clicked on an advert, an innocent advertisement on a school laptop and it opened right up to a pornography site. So it's in our face, but this, the acts that, the, the, where the mind will go in this area that Satan has robbed us of are no different than they were in Ephesus. You could walk, you didn't, you didn't have a smartphone, but you could walk down the street to the temple of Diana or Artemis and, and the, the acts that were going on in there would be just as awful as what is available, the pornography that's available to us today. But down the other end of the spectrum, that's where I really get concerned. Because down the other end of the spectrum is a very slippery slope, and we are all in danger there. There's a precipice. And the tendency is is that we slide down a little bit closer all the time, and before you know it, you're going to lose touch with the bottom, and it's just going to take you down. And here again, the, the language of the enemy, the empty words that deceive. I, I, can, I can go into a mainstream movie theater. I can go into, you know, I could go to Redbox. I, could, I can pick something up and, and watch it that's been critically acclaimed. It may have a PG-13 rating even. They go, oh, I'm okay. Certainly anytime, if, I, if I'm watching R-rated movies, and I, listen, I have watched R-rated movies. I will watch some of them. But I'm telling you right now, we have got to proceed very, very, very carefully and educated, be educated on any movie that has that rating. And there are great tools out there now to analyze what you're about to take in. There are some directors and producers, if the name's even associated with it, it's not even a consideration in my mind that I would, would venture to watch that. But there are some movies that, that have dealt with slavery and dealt with issues of culture that I have watched that have had an R rating because of some of the subject matter that's in them. But when there's a movie that has two people that's have, that are having sex, now the filmmaker would probably rather me refer to that as a lovemaking scene. We already talked about that. This is pornography. You know, that there's a, there's a whole... Department of the Air Force that is responsible, young men and women, very smart people, all they do all day long is they have all these satellite radar systems and all, and all they track up in outer space is space junk. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of space junk that are orbiting the Earth that we've sent up there, pieces, pieces you know, debris, uh, waste, all kinds of stuff, satellites that, that blew up that don't work anymore. And, and there's all this stuff up there that's in danger of, of threatening the life of an astronaut in, in a capsule going up to the space station or an, or an astronaut in the space station or wiping out a communication satellite that you rely on, you know, for your GPS or your cell phone. And there's all this space junk up there. And every time we cross a line with, with pornography, things that we should not be even speaking of, filthiness, foolishness, coarse jesting, things that aren't fitting, all that stuff becomes space junk in our minds. And the, and the Word of God is, is beautiful in renewing the mind. I believe that. It, it has renewed my mind greatly. But there is still space junk that, that floats around in my mind. I've heard Pastor Joe Foch talk about this. He'll say, out of the blue, something will just come whizzing by. Like, man, where did that come from? 
we got to quit launching stuff up there and we need to count on the Word of God to redeem and bring back down and clear our minds. Sex is powerful. In the physical, it can can create life. I mean, that's powerful. But we also know that it, and we're naive to think that it can't destroy lives. That's in the physical. In the spiritual, I, it's, 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 I can't even describe it spiritually what it means to us as human beings. It's a beautiful, splendid mystery. It's a gift that brings unparalleled intimacy between two human beings. And even more importantly than that, it's something that reveals things to us about God that I don't think could be revealed otherwise. And I can't explain all that. I don't understand all that. It is mystical. It's mysterious. It's powerful. And it was meant to be a blessing to God's creation. And it was meant to be within the parameters of marriage. Paul says you were formerly of darkness He says, but now you are light. The Bible speaks of God as the light of our salvation, Psalm 27, an everlasting light, Isaiah 60. His word is called a lamp unto our feet, Psalm 119. Christ is called the light of nations, Isaiah 49, in the true light which enlightens every man, John 1.9, and the light of the world, John 8.12. In walking like Jesus, we become not just mirrors of light, not just reflecting light, the Holy Spirit in you, you become a light source. And in this time when it is darker than ever, I believe, you are a light source on college campuses, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, and at your dinner table among family. You are a light source. Jesus said that you're the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a, bas- a, la- a basket, but on a lampstand. He says, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and they may glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, I know to sit at a lunch table on a college campus and talk about the sanctity of the sexual relationship and the need for purity and the beauty of it, and to stand against culture, I know that is like somebody just put the most intense blazing flare in the middle of the darkest space. There's going to be people, you're you're going to offend people. There's going to be people so blinded that they run out of the room. They can't even stand that. But I guarantee you that there's going to be those that are lost They're the lost. They're in darkness. They're lost. They love the darkness, Scripture tells us. They're going to see your light. There's going to be those that are going to be drawn to it. It'll be the only thing that takes them out of the death that they're in. Let your light so shine. Paul Ends this here. We'll talk, Bob will talk more about submission as he moves into marriage, but this last concept Verse 13, 15, rather, see then that you walk circumspectly. Walk in wisdom. That word circumspectly literally means looking all around, like the word circumference, looking all around. I have a couple friends that Marine Corps officers, 
One graduated through ROTC, one graduated through the Naval Academy, became infantry officers. And there's, if any, any Marines out there, you know this term. As a Marine Corps infantryman, there's a term that says when you're in battle, you better keep your head on a swivel. A lot of times these Marine Corps officers would have to send an infantryman in a rifle squad, like 10 or 12 guys walking on patrol in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And they would put one of the junior guys on point. That's the guy in front of the rest of these guys walking in a line. That's the first guy to come to a booby trap. That's the first guy to come into the crosshairs of a sniper rifle. And the Marine Corps officer would say, you better have your head on a swivel. You better be looking around all the time. What's on the ground? What's up in the trees? What's behind the rocks? What is going on? Paul says to us, you better have your head on a swivel. Because there are booby traps all around. There is a sniper with a crosshair on you that wants to take you down. And you need to walk in wisdom. Verse 17, don't be unwise. Understand, listen, what the will of the Lord is. We all want to know what it is. If I only knew the word, the will of the Lord in my life. Paul is referring to the fact that you know what the will of the Lord is. Here's his will. That you walk in obedience to his word. This is his will. What am I to do in this relationship? It's right here. What am I to do in this world? What am I to do in this darkness? What am I to do when, this, when I'm asked to compromise? Do his will. Redeem the time. There's no other time like this. Keep your head on a swivel because the days are evil. Will you stand and fight? As the worship team comes up, I want to end just with a couple quotes to get us thinking this morning. And these are in terms of this idea of the battlefield. Is your head on a swivel? You're looking at the times that were around. Shakespeare, in his play, Julius Caesar, uses this quote, or this line to talk about opportunity. I, I, it's very poetic to me. He says, there's a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at flood, a tide like the water coming in and going out, taking at flood when it's the highest that it can get, that leads on to fortune. Omitted in all the voyages of their life is bound in the shallows and miseries. Back in the 16 and 1700s, there was a tremendous shipbuilding industry in, in the rivers of South Jersey. Sometimes as far up the river as like Alloway and Salem and Lower Alloway and, and, and uh, these cities that are down along Delaware Bay, they would build ships. It would take them years to build ships from all the wood that was available in the forest there. And they would build them in streams that the ship could not float down. <laughs> so they would build a dam and they would build up the stream and then they would have to wait for once or twice a year there would be a flood tide that would bring enough water up from the bay and up into the streams and they would break the dam on the river where they built the ship and they would just basically ride a torrent of water down into the flood and then out where ships are meant to be, out on the ocean. And it's risky out on the ocean. It's much safer back in that port. But to not take advantage of that opportunity is to spend life in the shallows and miseries of South Jersey. Just kidding. <laughs> I used to live and work there, so I can say that. 
And then lastly, this quote from Napoleon will end with this. There, there is in the midst, and I believe this applies to us today, that in every great battle, there's 10 to 15 minute period that is crucial. That if you take that period, you win the battle. If you lose it, you'll be defeated. I believe this morning God spoke to some hearts. Relationships that need to be ended. Others that need to be recommitted to purity. And men and women that are involved in pornography that needs to end. And even standards on, on, our, on, our, on our, our honest viewing of what we're willing to compromise on that we need to take back. Are you willing to make that stand this morning? This is a point. This is a flood tide. Do we move on where God wants us? Or do we stay back in the swamps of misery? Would you stand?